I'm really excited to have been here last week and back again this week. I love that because I always, when I'm thinking about being here with you, I pile up so many things that I want to share. And I knew last week I didn't have to rush because I, but then in this week I piled up more stuff. So there's lots of things to talk about and I'm excited to be here with you. And I thought, well, we'll sit for a little bit. This has the overview, I think, of today is um, we'll sit in a little bit kind of to get here, but also to get here and develop a kind of as still much stillness and focus as we can. Um, I'm really um, I'm really uh, moved to do that because in just a minute, I'm going to tell you about an article that moved my heart very much and taught me a lot. I've got a lot of things to read to you that are part of my experience this week. And every one of them has been interesting to me, so I wanted to share it with you. And I'm so aware of how Dharma is 25, year, 2,500 years old, and it's still true. My friend Sharon is using that, uh, uh, has used that often during the pandemic when Everything was different from how it had ever been before. And she was the one who first used the phrase, what is still true? All of these changes are happening, but it's still true that a small moment of change, of awareness, can change how you see the whole world. It's still true that when you see clearly, really clearly, unencumbered by thoughts and plans and futures and backgrounds, we're really here then there's nothing to bias our choice of what should I do now to make myself feel better and make the world better. Then we really see clearly how a heart that's disposed to kindness is not only making a difference in the world because it's treating the world more kindly, but it's really the only redemptive position for me to be in. When my heart is kind, it's available for kindness and connected to something else, someone else, some living being. I'm not preoccupied in my stories. Then I'm not suffering. In in the middle of the fact that life is complicated and complex for most of us. So I really I I had the 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 dual lesson all week long up to right up to now, thinking about oh I'd love to read this and look at how Dharma it is. It's always Dharma. So we're going to do two meditations periods, one a little shorter right now. And uh, then I'm going to teach a little bit more, a little bit longer teach. And then we'll uh, have a little bit longer sit, not tremendously long, because I want to leave some substantial time at the end. Because last week, I realized how valuable it is to give you a chance to interact and to and to say your questions and say your views and uh, how pleased I am that this is now an interactive community where um, we are 80 people here, but we can talk to each other and we can, as if we're in a room with each other. It's like Spirit Rock, except that some of you are in North Carolina or Tennessee or everywhere. So the first thing I re- I just read this yesterday. This is from um, uh, this inspires the meditation we're going to do right away. 
this is last Sunday's, well, three days ago, New York Times, uh, which if you read the magazine section, there's an article called, When We Could Be Together Again, All We Wanted to Do Was Dance. The article is written by Karina Del Valle Shorsky, who is a contributing writer for the New York Times, uh, as well as translator. She lives in New York City and in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And um, the name of the article is called Bodies on the Line. And it's, a, it's a, 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 a photo essay. She's written it. It's beautiful writing, really wonderful writing. And it um, says, the summary says, this is a story about the return of communal dancing after a year of social distancing. And from June to August, as the pandemic seemed to be subsiding, the author and the photographer and friends uh, went to uh, 20 dance parties in New York City and Enverons documenting and participating in the joy of moving, moving your body with other people. And uh, the line that I underlined from the whole long eloquent article is she said in the middle of dancing somewhere, she said to herself, had New Yorkers always been this beautiful or had isolation turned my sight psychedelic? And the whole article I underlined that had New Yorkers always been so beautiful or had isolation turned my sight psychedelic. Do you remember? Oh, probably not so many, or oh, depending, we're 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 generally not so young on Wednesday mornings, but there are young people there. Do you remember the uh, the film The Yellow Submarine, the first Beatles film? Who remembers the Yellow Submarine. And the Yellow Submarine, if you remember, started out in uh, black and white. And uh, it's, a, it's a praise poem about the use of LSD. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And at some point, it's black and white, and then suddenly it becomes color. Do you remember that? Who remembers that? Uh, okay, so I'm not making it up out of a fantasy. That was true. So then I remembered that when I read this line, had New Yorkers always been this beautiful or had isolation turned my sight psychedelic? And meaning to say, one of, one of the things that isolation definitely did for me, I think for you as well, is I felt like I was on a long retreat. I felt that uh, my mind was much, even though it was a difficult year, I knew people who were sick, we couldn't go out, there were all kinds of constraints on, on everything. Uh, in my own household, my husband was in the final year of his illness. It wasn't like an easy year, but it was a paying attention in a very limited and focused way here. And I really did find that my mind was by itself having insights that were liberating it from old habits, mostly old habits of I don't like this one or I don't like that one or I have a bad view of that one. 
It's as if when the mind is focused, the confusing habits of opinions just disappear. Poof, they're gone. And we've talked about that. Uh, we've talked about, I, I, I keep talking about the cartoon where a woman looking out the window is saying to the woman she lives with in the apartment, I can't wait for this pandemic to be over so I can forget all the big insights, important insights I had during the pandemic. And I feel the opposite. I want the pandemic to be over, but I don't want to forget the insights. And the insights are always... It doesn't matter what someone said 14 years ago or the day before yesterday, or that they didn't have a good opinion or something. What matters is that this is a precious human life and we're alive and we can see and act and we can bless. But I love that idea of the mind becoming psychedelic. I remember the yellow submarine going from black and white to wow. Uh, we look at ordinary things. I don't remember if it was here, it was somewhere in the last couple of weeks that I looked out my window right here. I've lived in this house for 60 years and I'm looking out a window that sees only the top of oaks. I have all oaks quite close to my window, some deciduous, some not. And just this week, I thought to myself, they're full of red squirrels running around in them. And I thought to myself, I wonder if these squirrels are the descendants of the squirrels that were in this tree, these trees, 60 years ago when I moved in here. And I bet they were. People don't move that much. They get used to their environment. And all of a sudden, I'm just looking at it, I thought, oh, these are the great, 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 great grandchildren of my original squirrels. And I've been here forever. And I all of a sudden, like, wow. And these trees became way more beautiful. So I thought that was a wonderful way to say about what happens when the mind settles down and becomes focused. It becomes, if not psychedelic, it becomes insightful. And it not only sees, wow, these are probably the same squirrels, who knows? But it sees, wow, what my mind was caught up in a grudge, that was stupid and wasting my energy in my lifetime. Oh, wow, that person, you know, they were doing the best they can. But really I have on the, on the banner on the top of my notes is talk about forgiveness. And one of the things I'm going to talk about today is that I don't know that, well, we can say forgiveness happens. I think wisdom happens eventually. And wisdom happens and we understand that nobody can do other than what they're doing. Everyone, the Buddha said, everyone is heir to their own karma. It doesn't only mean we got what we deserve because we did this or that in another life. It means everything that ever, ever happened is part of my experience of these selves now. That's what it means. And we know all the things that are true of Dharma. We're able to know those profound things like there's nothing but change and there's nothing that liberates the heart more than forgiveness of oneself and others. So now let's sit a little bit. And I thought that I would structure the sit in such a way that it really um, 
is aiming for um, acuity of focus. Sometimes uh, the instructions are more spacious, just let anything arise and uh, notice whether the mind startles or not. This particular one, maybe we'll do that later on, this particular meditation is going to be uh, really trying to bring the attention and the focus to a really narrowed and bright, alert perspective. So sit in a way that makes you comfortable. And on your own, count on your fingers, take five long breaths in and out, prolong the in and prolong the out, and see if you can really be with all the sensations in and out five times. Now count five breaths in and out, but not prolonging and blowing out longer. Just let five normal breaths come in and out. And on the out breath, say to yourself, relaxing the body. And let it relax more and more on each out breath.
keeping the same steadiness of focus. See what happens in your body and in your mind if you smile. Seriously smile. Take a moment to really notice different body sensations, different mind sensations. For the next three or four minutes, we'll just sit this way. I like you to uh, bring your attention just to the body as it is by itself, not trying to do anything, and paying very close attention to the arising of a breath and the swelling up of the body and the lungs as it fills with the breath all by itself without you doing it or prolonging it. Just a normal breath fills the body. And then a normal breath goes out of the body. It's not really, well, it's the same breath, but it's two actions. It's an inhale and then a pause and an exhale and then a pause. The pause at the end is usually a wee bit longer and easier to discern than the pause in the middle. But for a moment or two, the body rests and then the next breath fills it up. You don't do anything. It fills itself. The biosphere fills it. Your muscles coordinate with it. See if you can stay with that miracle of just by itself breathing happening, one breath after another. For just three minutes.
when you open your eyes, take a moment to look around at people. It's been my experience that um, everybody looks a, a little bit more beautiful after I've been sitting. And I don't think that, you know, first of all, everybody is beautiful in their own way. But I think when I'm startled by how beautiful everyone is, I, it's because uh, I see their uniqueness. Everybody looks just like them. <laughs> and I, what, what I have less in my mind is the encumbrance of clouds. That here's another person with a life, with a face somewhere. So one of the things that I learned from um, from reading that article in the in the Sunday paper, by the time I read it, it's wonderfully written. By the time I read it, I was in the best mood, and I was thinking, uh, "Well, it's very good writing, but it's it's a it's a, it's also very energetic writing because it's." 10 different, 12 different, uh, 20 different dance parties with DJs with different styles of dancing. And I read the whole thing. And I thought, you know, this is really interesting. I'm reading it and I'm feeling really delighted. My, my own mood is picked up. I'm not in New York, I'm not at a dance party. I'm way too old to be at a dance party. I don't even, never even heard of half those dances. <laughs> and I realized that the ability, of, because of what mood I was in, or because it's written so well, or whatever, that that moods are catchable, and you don't even have to be in the room with somebody. You can get you can't catch a cold if you read if you're looking at a person on a on a on a Zoom, but you can catch a mood, and. Uh, and then I become a carrier of mood, and I began to think about how we're all carriers of moods. And I think about that a lot, that we're all broadcasting all the time, like antennas. And, you know, when you're in a room with uh, tension or a room with gloom, but I really felt lifted up by that. And I was thinking that uh, joy is contagious, mudita is contagious. That's probably, that might be a new word for some people. Um, it's um, a Pali word or a Sanskrit word. And it means empathic joy. Somebody else, sympathetic joy, but sympathetic is a funny word to use in that context. Empathic joy. Other people are having a good time and you know about it and you feel it in your body. You begin to feel, we each have a, we're each a, a precious a transmitter in the, in the world. So I can't run a dance party or go to a dance party, but I, I can take this transmitter wherever I am. And if it's, if it's transmitting on a good vibe, I am lifting up the world by passing around moods. Gratitude is contagious. Moods are contagious. Somebody once gave me a platter. I don't have it anymore. I must have given it away or something. It said, uh, everything depends on attitude. Choose a good one. So, you know, the, the bringing your attention to, wow, look at that, and seeing it. Ah, it's as if somebody I, I once uh, 
some ba uh, football player I was uh, at one point in the habit of quoting, reveling in um, uh, an amazing end of a game where he said, Joe Montana threw that pass and so-and-so caught it in the end zone. Uh, but I felt as if it were me. You know, that that kind of, it doesn't matter. The joy is contagious and ubiquitous. And there's no envy. I don't wish I had it. I am participating in the joy of the world. I, uh, I uh, delighted in watching the splashdown of that uh, spaceship that went up for three days. I hope you watched it. Uh, I, I, I'm aware that there's all kinds of talk about so much money on private spaceships going around the moon and only billionaires can do that. And how about eradicating famine in the world and not spending money on that? Those are all valuable things to talk about. But I watched it and I was, and who knows what we learn from what, what things we can do to ameliorate climate change or what new information for physicists come. But notwithstanding whether it was uh, politically correct to enjoy it or not, I enjoyed it. And I watched and I was really eager for those poor people to get out of that capsule, and which they all did. And I remarked that they were a diverse group and they had two women and two men and different ethnicities and they had all the right staging for it. But the, the, the thing that I really loved is uh, uh, the if people wanted to send a gift or it was in honor of or the proceeds of went to St. Jude's Hospital. And so from time to time in the coverage of it while they were waiting to get people out or of the capsule, they had uh, little snippets of interviews with people at St. Jude's. And you know that St. Jude's is a hospital that treats uh, uh, unusual I, I, childhood diseases, cancers, I think, only, but really difficult cases. And when you go to St. Jude's, they take you as a patient, they give your parents or your family housing, you get charged nothing for treatment at St. Jude's. So they interviewed a, a young boy who was bald and apparent, and they announced about him. And they said, so-and-so uh, who is now cancer-free and getting ready to go home. And he looked like a, a child of maybe 12, 10 or 12 years old. And the interviewer said, um, when you grow up, do you want to be an astronaut? And now, uh, because actually one of one of the people on that shuttle was a person who had had cancer as a child and has a prosthetic limb. So anyway, they asked this child, do you want to be an astronaut when you grow up? And he said, no, I want to be a doctor here at St. Jude's, taking care of people to give back to the people who gave to me. And that was the best moment of the whole thing. I just love that. I wrote it down right away. That when the mind is uplifted, which it was when I read the dance party, when I watched the 
the moon, the the uh, the capsule landing, mine gets uplifted. Uh, it lifts it right up over all the old. I don't like this, and I don't like that, and I'm depressed about that, and my old story about this is bothering me. It like lifts you up out of an old story. It's liberating the mind out of the stuff of its um, the stuff of its daily chatter. And when it gets lifted up, it feels like doing good for other people. Uh, I've been thinking a lot also on a parallel track uh, of, um, since I know very well, and if I asked you how many people here, when they do something good or kind, or somebody does a kindness to them, you feel good. Every, everybody, how many people put up your hand if you feel good? Of course, everybody feels good when someone is kind to them or they are kind. I've been thinking a lot these days about, um, I'm getting more and more spam calls. Are you getting spam calls? Uh, and my phone is even now telling me this is a possible scam, possible scam. And I feel so sad. I, you know, I don't answer when it's a possible scam. Sometimes it doesn't say I answer and it is. A frightening voice that says our U.S. Social Security has been canceled or something. And I think to myself, what kind of people do this for a living? How do they do this kind of thing, frighten people for a living? And I can't think that it gives them pleasure that they get up, oh, I'm going to scam all these people. What? I, don't, I mean, I, I don't get it. Um, I... When you read an article and it says somebody found a, a bag of um, uh, a big bag of money on a, on, a, on a subway station that someone dropped, then they take it to the local police station and they find the person or they find a purse with a lot of money. I think to myself, that is so good. If I hear about that, I am lifted up. But plenty of people pick up stuff and run with it. I had my purse stolen in a, in a train once. And I thought about it afterwards. What does that person feel afterwards? How can they feel good? This is uh, the link to um, what the Buddha taught, by the way, if you're thinking, why is Sylvia talking about this? Where's the Dharma? The Buddha said, he said a couple of things. He said, not doing that, doing the correct thing, being ethical, is, produces the bliss of blamelessness. And that uh, doing, uh, doing something, that, that people do things that are terrible things, only if they don't feel good, if they are in pain. If they are in pain, they're doing it to compensate for the pain in some way. There's a, a wonderful uh, uh, Zen, um, what do you call, uh, haiku, a Zen haiku of uh, monk haikus. Uh, and the monk is saying, you know, while I was away, so, uh, a thief came and took everything in my small hut. Uh, he said, I can see the full moon though out my window alas I wish I could give him the moon you know that uh, 
that your response to somebody who takes your stuff is they must have been in pain because they give them more. I thought that uh, I would read to you a piece of, um, I'll read two things to you. About it. I'll talk to you in between them about why I'm reading them to you. I'm trying to think about which one. So I'll talk about forgiveness. A roundabout way that the roundabout trail in my mind that I'm following is I want to get around to talking about that chart that. I uh, that I made about the virtues, the 10 virtues that the Buddha was said to have perfected in all his previous lives, the chart that you can get by tapping on that link that uh, Tolan put in the chat, Tolan, or where is it? It's in the chat. I'll share it again. Okay. If you ch- just to have it, to own it. I thought we'd get up to it today. Maybe we will. We'll do it sometime. But it's a list of 12 perfections of the heart, like generosity and um, restraint, re, uh, uh, renunciation and morality and uh, uh, honesty and determination and loving kindness and patience. Uh, all of those, uh, 10 of them all together. Uh, they're all manifestations of kindness, a kindness that you do to other people or a kindness that you do to yourself. And what, what I have come to deeply believe is that when we see clearly, not necessarily past how beautiful everyone is and how unique everyone is, and that things arise and pass away and that everything is ultimately without substance the only thing that's really reliable is that it will change past that the doctrinal thing that i absolutely believe from my own experience is that the only redemption from the suffering mind is through kindness to yourself and other people to hold um to hold oneself and the whole world in loving care, which you can only do if you forgive them. That forgiveness is an artifact. It's a word we call for the block in the mind for I can't wish well to that person. And that block gets overcome by wisdom. The wisdom that overcomes it is knowing they couldn't be other, they couldn't be different, Every individual is heir to their own karma. They just are that way. And it's a source of um, compassion arising. That's the whole of the Dharma that I just said in that last sentence. But it is. So everything that we're trying to do, I'll read you a little bit of this. Uh, Which one do I want to do first? I'll tell you this first. Um, I mentioned to you last week when we when we together that last Wednesday, the 15th, was the day before Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur in the Jewish calendar is um, 
translated as uh, the day of atonement or the day of making amends, or the day of forgiveness. And uh, I had a whole new understanding, a whole new, a really different understanding of um, the emphasis of that day, which might seem heavy on really examination of conscience. But what I really discovered last week, more than ever before, is that the earnestness with which uh, people individually and communally are examining their own conscience is really a, um, um, a demonstration of the uh, ardent wish we have to be really uh, free to be kind, not caught in grudges and recriminations and old stories about other people and old stories about ourselves. And someone in my emails back and forth, which on holidays or special times from all my friends pick up and paste, someone said, uh, sent me this version. Uh, well, it sounds familiar to some of you. It's a, it's a, a, a small variation of a normal forgiveness meditation. And it says, if I've harmed anyone, knowingly or unknowingly, out of confusion, may they forgive me. And if anyone has harmed me, knowingly or unknowingly, out of confusion, may I forgive them. And if I have harmed myself for the ways that I have harmed myself by negating myself, by doubting myself, by belittling myself, by judging myself, being unkind to myself through my own confusion, I forgive myself. And what that means is in this moment, I have the realization that whatever I did, I did because I couldn't do other. Well, you could have tried harder. You couldn't. If you could have, you would have. Nobody purposely suffers. So I'll read this to you. This is an essay by uh, Esau McCullough. Esau McCullough is a, um, a, an opinion writer for the uh, New York Times. He's also a professor of New Testament at Wheaton College in Illinois, and the author of the book, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation and the Experience of Hope. That's his book. And uh, I'm, I'm gonna read a couple of paragraphs because uh, it's, it, it's really, it was astounding to me, it was a long editorial, but here it is. President Biden, in a somber tone and muted dress indicative of responding to tragedy, addressed the nation late last month. The Kabul airport attack had just claimed the lives of 13 American troops and over 60 Afghan citizens. He spoke movingly of the ultimate sacrifice made by our servicemen and women. Then he turned his attention to our enemies and he said, we will not forgive, we will not forget, we will hunt you down and make you pay. Mr. Biden's response echoed the sentiments of George W. Bush 20 years ago in the wake of September 11th. For most of my life, 
I have listened to American presidents, Democratic and Republican, promise death to our enemies. The logic behind this is basic enough. Acts of evil demand justice. No one can watch caskets draped in the American flag return home to weeping family members and final salutes and not be stirred. My family knows this fear. My grandfather served this country as part of the U.S. Army. My wife has done so for over 15 years of active and reserved service in the Navy. I have pastored in churches near military bases. I understand the unease that surrounds combat deployments. It is precisely these experiences that give me pause about Mr. Biden's promise to not forgive. We have seen what anger and the desire for revenge can do. It metastasizes within and among us. Our desire for justice can quickly turn into hatred, coldness, and even vengeance against entire peoples. Our picture of foreigners becomes distorted and we see them as threats instead of gifts to the Republic. This anger has been turned towards different racial, ethnic, and religious groups depending on the season. It has floundered this way and that, never finding rest or satiation. We have seen the fruits of, polit of a politics of revenge, but the politics of forgiveness and restraint remain largely untested. What if we stopped feeding the beast? What if a president stood before the country and chose a different path? We have the strongest military in the world. It is fair to consider what is necessary to protect our country, but power can also be revealed in these frames. Here is a radical and seemingly untenable proposal. Suppose we meet hatred with forgiveness and even sometimes love. I'm gonna to skip to way near the end of this article, which uh, you can probably find if you um, Google Macaulay, MC, MC, capital C-A-U-L-E-Y. Then he, he, because he ends by saying, we should pick up arms with heavy hearts, if at all. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., speaking of his resistance to war, said that Choice today is no longer between violence and nonviolence. It is either nonviolence or non-existence. That really, I just was very moved by. Very moved by the fact that, whoops, I have lost all of you now. There you are. There you are, right? There you are. Once upon a time, to make this officially a Buddhist talk, there was a king in India named Ashoka. And uh, it was a time when various small kingdoms within the Indian subcontinent fought with each other. King Ashoka was a very strong king strong area that he controlled. And it's said that one morning after a particular big battle, King Ashoka went out 
and toured the battlefield and saw the carnage there, horses and people all dead. And he changed his mind. I'm trying to, I was trying to remember if part of the story of Ashoka is he also saw a monk walking through the battlefield. And he, and he intuited that the monk had equanimity in his mind. And he, Ashoka, said, I'm changing it. We're not going to do war anymore. And he seriously didn't. And he worked out other ways of governing. And it's very well known that this is a real story. He, he changed it into nonviolent governance. The Buddha himself in the Dhammapada said, hatred is never ended by hatred. By love alone is hatred ended. This is the eternal truth. There's a book called In this place together, if you feel like it, you can order the book on Amazon. In this place together, it's written by a woman named Penina Eilberg, E-I-L-B-E-R-G, Schwartz, hyphen Schwartz. Uh, Penina is a young woman in her 30s, I think, um, who wrote a book called In This Place Together, which is a story of a man named Suleiman Khatib, who's a uh, Palestinian and was a young boy, maybe 14, when he was arrested for the first time for throwing rocks in an uh, intifada and spent years, years in Israeli prisons in terrible conditions. And during which time he educated himself and got all kinds of degrees and speech other languages and, and came out and became a principal um, personage in the contemporary um, peace movement in, between Israelis and Palestinians, the joint peace movements like Combatants for Peace, where they are former combatants on both sides that they meet. Uh, they do amazing things. Suleiman Khalib. The reason I'm telling you that story is that Panina's rendition of his life, as he told it to her, is done so well. And then in the end, uh, towards the end of the book, where he's way out from prison and he's educated himself and he's become a major spokesperson on these kinds of, uh, on working things out in a nonviolent way. Uh, he surprised, he, the, the one line that stays in my mind without the book in front of me is that some event happened and he had a response to the event and it was an unexpected response. It, it, he's, he's, and he thought to himself, oh, I'm thinking like an Israeli. And uh, that uh, seriously, his mind has changed. He hadn't stopped being a Palestinian and stopped thinking as a Palestinian. But for a moment there, he absorbed material as an Israeli. I think to myself, 
Actually, his family found him. I mean, his family loves him and he's involved with his family. But to be able to think like somebody else, we say it all the time in a kind of a, uh, you know, everybody heard about walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, et cetera. But I don't know when you walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. Maybe you know what their feet were like, but you don't know necessarily what. I don't know. But he said, all of a sudden, he said, I'm thinking like an Israeli. And how I, I thought to myself, how could I think? Could I think like my cousin who votes differently than I? My cousin, who I like very much, um, who votes differently from I. We, have, we don't discuss it. They're good people. Could I change my mind and not have a view? There's a line from um, oh, it's a line from the third, the faith verses of the third Zen patriarch, and the line is. To know the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. I actually have that written on uh, a pencil. My pencil is not right here. Well, I sent away, you know, those pencil companies that you can send away? Years ago, I and you get 20 pencils and they've got something on it. And my pencil says, to know the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. It doesn't mean don't have opinions. It means don't be wedded to that opinion. You could be right, and you could also be right. It's not about forgiving. It's about becoming wise. I see I wrote here the confusion. Oh, why I like that particular rubric that somebody sent to me, if anybody has harmed me, knowingly or unknowingly, out of confusion. That is the key line. I had never heard that before. You ever heard that before? I didn't. To recognize that if someone is doing something like that, it is out of confusion. You do something terrible to people, most people. If we do something inadvertently, we say something and somebody says, oh, I felt terrible for you. We feel bad, don't we? I mean, you feel bad. And I even, <laughs> they say, no, no, I was so mad. I wanted him to hear that. I think a time comes when you think, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I had not done unkind things, but we do. Out of confusion. I looked up for myself yesterday because I was sure that one of Jesus's utterances on the cross was forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. How many of you recognize it? It's actually the first utterance on the cross. They don't know what they're doing. It doesn't mean let them get away with it. It doesn't mean don't do anything about it. It means forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Look what we're doing. We're just spoiling this whole earth. And if everybody suddenly got the memo, this earth isn't going to be here in a habitable way. You know, sometimes I, you know, 
however much I'm amazed at the physics and the uh, uh, whatever expertise that launches things that go to the moon, um, I think, well, someday we'll have to have, uh, you know, cities on the moon. I think you're not going to take 8 billion people to the moon. Those are going to be very elite cities. What about the whole rest of the people who are not on the moon? realize that nobody knows what they're doing, but they do things. They think I'm making up my mind to do this. But really, who knows what are the factors deep in the mind that are motivating that? I want to read you at least one more thing. A friend of, a friend of mine sent me this, and it's quite long. I won't read the whole thing. And I'll abbreviate it, but um, on Yom Kippur, rabbis all over the country gave sermons about forgiving, and and a, a number of them came in my mailbox from friends. And uh, I don't know Rachel Timoner, who was the rabbi who gave this. I don't even know in what state or where she is, but. Um, I'll read a little bit of this because it's very important. Oh, I have to preface it. So you see, why am I reading this in a Buddhist class? As I've just been talking about having a whole open heart to wish well to everyone. And when I, it's been my experience that when I teach metta meditation, which is loving kindness meditation, talk about wishing well towards your proximal people and not so proximal and not so proximal, and the whole world, but it's based on the understanding that you start with yourself and you start with a visceral conviction that what you want for yourself, I, I'm, I'm saying this like a, you know, in a preacher voice, because I believe it, is what I want is my mind to be at peace, not troubled. I said to a friend of mine on the phone earlier this morning, I said, I think we have two mind states peaceful and uh-oh, you know, that really, when there's no kind of a problem and we, body feels all right, there's no impending stress happening, not late for class, I don't have a symptom of COVID or that, nothing. Um, and nothing, and you're sitting and meditating, sometimes it happens. Or sometimes I give the instruction. Let the mind and body assume its natural peace and ease and just sit there. And we do. And people discover, lo and behold, the mind has a natural peace and ease. If you leave it alone, it just sits. And it's pleasant. And then all of a sudden you think, uh-oh, I wonder what time dry cleaners closes and I didn't get my clothes that I need tomorrow. Or uh-oh. What is that funny sound coming out of the refrigerator? I wonder if the icebreaker is broken or, uh-oh, I forgot to call so-and-so back. That all, it, that the difference between peace and ease is did I take care of everything and am I safe or my mind has peace and ease? I was wondering maybe in, in a former world where you didn't know from one decade to another what was happening on the other side of the world, which is just a hundred years ago, 
maybe you didn't worry so much. I mean, you worry when you don't feel well or your children don't feel well or, or you wonder and then you go and you get help and they either get better or they don't. But I was thinking about how much the awareness, the visceral awareness of how much I want to be peaceful and at ease. So that the traditional way of doing metta meditation is you teach it to people by saying, think of yourself as you're sitting and say to yourself, I'll, let's just use phrases that I might use for myself. May I feel, um, may I feel safe? Well, let's do it. Let's do it for two minutes now, wherever you're sitting, you don't have to change yourself around. Close your eyes and say to you, take a breath in and out and say to yourself earnestly, ardently, may I feel safe. Think it to yourself, may I feel safe. Try to feel that safe echo through your body. May I feel safe. May I feel safe. Like you really, really mean it. Pray for yourself. If the mind is focused and ardent enough, it doesn't contest it. Especially if you don't feel good. May I feel safe. There's nothing we want more than to feel safe when we don't feel good. May I feel content. May I feel content. May my body feel strong. May my mind feel at peace. We'll do this as an exercise in a few minutes. That's the fundamental exercise of, that's the beginning exercise in formal learning, loving kindness meditation. And then after yourself, it's because you've been in touch 
with how redemptive, how completely pleasant it is that we can, I can say that to myself because I have some visceral sense of how it feels to have that. And I want that for myself. And then of course, in traditional practice after yourself, you think about the people who are very near and dear to you and the people who are proximally dear to you and the people who are approximately after that, people that you kind of know. And ultimately, every all living beings amongst whom are the people you have some problem presumably with and are it's, it's people's experience that by the time they are in a place of really at ease they they don't come to a person that they're estranged from and think oh no not them i love everybody in the whole world may they be well but not you that doesn't work like that that the mind itself when it's very focused and gratified says they couldn't be otherwise poor thing may they be well too and one of the things that the buddha taught which i use a lot when i teach is that people sometimes say when i teach that i can wish well for everybody but not for myself i can't wish well for myself that feels wrong I can wish well for everybody else but not for me and uh Know that, but uh, what I like to say is, first of all, that doesn't make any sense because you're always—it's your heart that's wishing, and it's your heart that's wishing out of a visceral confirmation that that feeling is possible in a person, no matter they're old, no matter they're sick, especially if they're old and sick, they could—they really are in touch with wanting to feel all right. People say it seems too self-centered. There's so many other people, so much more um, earning of my goodwill than me because I have this and this and this and this. And I like to tell them that the Buddha said, if you search this whole world over, there is no one you will find that is more worthy of your goodwill by yourself than yourself. I love that. There's the whole world over. I think he meant there's no one in the whole world whose heart can be changed other than your own. But that's not so poetic. So there's the whole world over. There's no one who is more worthy of your well-wishing than yourself. But I, uh, oh, there's also the story, by the way, of every human birth is precious. Um, now I'm going to skip that story. Every birth is precious. Now, the uh, the reason I hesitate about it is that uh, planning when you're going to have the human birth and doing that in an appropriate way is also part of freedom. What I want to talk about is, I'll tell this other story about the Dalai Lama. This must have happened 30 or 40 years ago. There was a conference and some of us were there 
with with psychologists meeting the Dalai Lama in some Eastern city, maybe Buddha, uh, Boston. And the, they were all psychologists and psychotherapists, and they were talking to the Dalai Lama about what they saw as a pervasive epidemic of um, self-loathing. Uh, uh, of, of people were ashamed of themselves, and they that as a as a pathological thing. That was they said, American people are ashamed of themselves, and uh, I think they said they have very low self esteem. And uh, His Holiness didn't know what that meant. And his uh, his translators had he speaks good English anyway, low self esteem. Anyway, his translator is explaining to him back and forth. No, he doesn't get it. They explain again, doesn't get it, explain again. And he sits up and he said, but that's a mistake. That's a mistake. Every human being is a precious human being. It's a mistake. You can have confused human beings, but not worthless human beings. So this is somebody's... Uh... Anyway. This is from Rachel's, Rachel Timona's Yom Kippur sermon. Ever since I was ordained as a rabbi, my father insisted, despite my reluctance, that when the time came, he would conduct, I would conduct his funeral. He died on March 3rd of this year. My rabbi has come, he said, when I arrived at his bedside days before he died. I asked him if he wanted to do the confessional prayer, which is what you're supposed to make just before you die a final confession like releasing all of his guilt and shame and confessing wrongdoings and asking for forgiveness so he can leave the world lighter and my father said yes he'd like to say that and he wanted me to guide him through that deathbed confession as his rabbi so the day before he died i sat by my father's side as he lay with his eyes closed remembering his failures his mistakes his sin his shame he recounted with pain the time after his stroke at age 52, after he suddenly lost his health, his mobility, his position as the CEO and chairman of the board of his airline, after he lost all of his wealth and all of his savings, he could not pay his bills and he was desperate. He went begging for loans to the banks who had funded his businesses and to former associates. He remembered in particular uh, a man who had co-chaired with him a certain charity appeal, a multimillionaire, just as my father had been, he asked this man for a small amount, an amount that he was embarrassed to need. And crushingly, the man denied even his small request. So did the banks. They judge you by your net worth, my father said. I had none. My father, stripped of all status and dignity, felt a shame so deep and all-encompassing, he came to believe that he had no worth. And he said, I have felt this shame for 40 years, he said. I believe that I was worthless. This was the sin that he really wanted to confess before he died. My father's confession, his realization was that he had measured his life wrong all along not only in the second half of his life when he quote unquote failed, but also in the first half of his life when he quote unquote succeeded as a CEO, as an employer, as a business and community leader. He, he had thought his value was based on what he did in the world. 
He thought his worth was earned by his success. In the last two weeks of his life, however, he could finally begin to see how loved he was and how much his love had shaped the lives of people around him. And only in his last two days did he understand that the measure of his life was not net worth, but love. This goes on and on and on. She's challenging people to think, what, what, happened, what would happen to you if you suddenly lost all the things you own or your prestige? Or... And she said, all the people don't have that so much. So we're not all older people, but many of us are older people or olding people. And most of us know that our net worth is how well-loved we feel and how well-loving we can be. Goes on to say that, uh, oh no, there's one more thing and then I wanna sit, I'm gonna, uh, let's do this. I wanted to take up again the, um, the question I asked earlier about, well, the story I told earlier about King Ashoka, who had been governing a certain way and one day went out in the battlefield and said, I'm not gonna do that anymore. What's gonna happen in our world that somebody is gonna say, okay, I'm not gonna do this anymore. Let's do it another way, let's all stop. Uh, of course, the point that the point that the story is making—it's a long story—and I want us to meditate—is that um, you don't know what what thing you're going to do that is ultimately going to be either the precipitating thing or the the maturing thing of some new movement. All I can do is what's on my plate right here. But one of the things that I read in this last week um, was a recounting of uh, the the, uh, the growth of uh, the labor movement in the United States and health and safety in the workplace in the United States. And uh, it was a, uh, a praise to um, Francis Perkins. Francis Perkins, on May 25th, 1911, Francis Perkins was visiting with a friend who lived near Washington Square in New York City when they heard fire engines and people screaming. They rushed out to the street to see what the problem was. A fire had broken out in a garment factory in the upper floors of a building on Washington Square and the blaze ripped through the lint in the air. The only way out was down the elevator, which had been abandoned at the base of its shaft, or through an exit to the roof. But the factory owner had locked the roof exit because he later testified he was worried that his workers might steal some of the blouses that they were making. It's also true that I've read about the Triangle Factory, that uh, the doors were locked so they could not take toilet breaks because the owner felt that they were taking too many toilet breaks and not producing enough. 
and people began jumping from the top of the building as they did from the World Trade Center. At the end of that triangle shirtwaist fire, 147 young people were dead, either from falls from factory windows or from smoke. She had, she had, Perkins had few illusions. She'd worked in a settlement house in an impoverished immigrant neighborhood in Chicago and was also the head of the New York office of the National Consumers League, urging customers to use their buying power to demand better conditions and wages for workers. And so she took it up as a larger cause. It was a kind of shock. We went on expanding. She was then a commission in New York State. She was, she went on to be the first woman to serve in the cabinet of the president of the United States. Franklin Roosevelt, um, In 1929, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt replaced Al Smith as New York governor, he appointed Francis Perkins to oversee the state's labor department as the depression was worsening. In 1933, President-elect Roosevelt asked Perkins to serve as the secretary of labor in his administration. She accepted only in the condition that he back her goals, unemployment insurance, health insurance, old age insurance, a 40 hour work week, a minimum wage and the abolition of child labor. She later recalled, I remember he looked so startled and he said, do you think it can be done? And she did it. So you need one person, you need Ashoka. Who's gonna be the Ashoka for now? Maybe many Ashokas now are gonna do that. But you know what, I, I picked that out to read to you because I thought Francis Perkins' life was very worthwhile. But, you know, so was Francis Perkins' mother because she had Francis Perkins. Nobody's life is not, you don't have to do, you don't have to be changing the world. Each of us is part of the fabric of the whole world. We wouldn't all be here. And we wouldn't all be here this morning unless in some ways we are all holding up, we're all gonna go out and be in our lives, we'll do things. We'll hold the door at the post office for somebody. We'll bring somebody a lunch, a, 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 a casserole lunch. We'll take care of the, everybody that we get to take care of and they'll take care of people. That I, 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 I'm thinking, uh, I'm very happy that for a long time, the, um, when you left uh, uh, a supermarket, you left someplace, wherever they'd say, have a good day. And I think it's been replaced by take care of yourself over the last decade. I, don't you think? People say, take good care of yourself. I'm signing all my emails, take care of yourself. For the people that I know, I said, take care of yourself, I love you. I want to startle other people, so I just say, take care of yourself. But if the whole world took care of themselves, it would be good.
I had all those things I wanted to tell you about, and I did. I did. I did. So, and we didn't sit. We'll sit for 15 minutes. Moses says on the it says in the description have a period of sitting. I would like to give this as a sitting instruction because I want to leave time because last week we didn't have quite enough time. Leave time for questions that you might want to ask. Here we go, 15 minutes. Let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body and just stay there. Don't try to do anything. as you feel your body being breathed by the air in the room, by the air in the biosphere. Sounds arise inside, outside. Want to, you can do some of the long breaths that we did before, or the recitations. May I feel safe? May I feel content? May I feel strong? May I feel at peace? Pieces of what I read or talked about float up in your mind, notice them. Thinking and learning is a noble reflection. Mind wandering into the past and the future is fine, but it's not so evocative of wisdom. Try to keep yourself here and say to yourself, I'm here and I'm alive and I'll be quiet.
begin to think about um, rejoining the group if your eyes are closed. It's always startling to open your eyes and see all those people. And we'll take um, a minute just to look around at the people and wish them well. There are people I don't yet know personally, but I've been seeing you for a few weeks. So uh, start to look a little familiar. If you'd like to ask a question or talk about something or add something, I hope you will, because talking to each other is an important part of this class. Then use that raise your hand icon. <laughs> 